Well, again, good morning, church. It is good to see you guys. Um, I am grateful that we are a smaller church in that, like, I know each and every uh, one of you fairly well. Even when you have a mask on, I can still tell who you are, so that is great, because it would be super awkward to talk to you and realize I thought you were someone else. And so thank God that we don't have that problem this morning. Um, But it is good to see you guys. It's good to worship with you guys, to sing songs about Jesus, to pray. I I feel... um, that the Lord is working on our church in, in prayer, like that we probably are guilty of not praying enough, and that I am excited to see the Lord is moving on us to pray more together. And I do hope that that is not um, burdensome to you, but that you enjoy time of prayer, that you enjoy um, speaking to the Lord. Like, think about that, like, and we'll get into this here in just a bit. And I told Donna I've got a roll because I meant seven pages and I got nine, so we will, uh, we will carry on here in just a bit. But think about that. Like when we pray, we are coming before the God who created the universe. And we are so guilty from time to time in just flippantly doing that. Like it's a drive-through window that we just waltz up and say, hey, good to see you. How are you doing today? Here's what I want. I'm out the door. And we don't see that. We don't see that in the New Testament church when we read scripture. We see that they were dedicating their time throughout the week in gathering together and praying and worshiping the Lord and singing songs and, and just being with one another. And church, like that's where we need to be. So I do pray that when we are praying as a church, that your heart is looking to Jesus, that you are um, not just, in a sense, sleeping through it, but that you would understand the weight of the privilege we have in getting to come before a holy, an omnipotent, and all-powerful God with our petitions and our worship. And so I pray that the Holy Spirit would continue to work on our church and work on our hearts to cause us to love the time that we get to spend in prayer. So as you can tell, moving along, as you can tell, Chris is not here. He and his family, um, if you've been following him on Facebook, they've got all kinds of pictures that they've been posting. And, and uh, I think Lucas has spent, and he's not even here for me to pick on him, but Lucas has spent more time holding the camera in photos than taking photos. And that's like in the Grand Canyon. Here's Lucas, take a picture of me with my camera. So when, he, when they come back, make sure you let everyone know, let him know that I, I picked on him from the from the pulpit area here. So if you will, um, let's turn to Matthew chapter 13. We've got a lot of text today that I really want to make sure that we are in the Word, so we're not taking just my word at it, but we are taking the Scriptures for what the Scriptures say as well. So if you will, I just have a couple verses here. Matthew chapter 13, if you will stand with me real quick as we read. Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for just letting us gather together today with one goal in mind, and that is to, to see and pursue and worship and honor you. And I pray that we, that we do that today, that we're not just here uh, in a social club setting or anything else, Lord, that, but we are pursuing you. And just thank you so much for us, uh, this family that I get to gather with every week, 
I pray that you would continue in my heart to, to grow a love for them and grow a love for each one of us um, so that the world will know that we are Christians by our love for one another. Lord, just pray that we would see Jesus for who he truly is, that as a church and as individuals, as believers, that we would see Jesus as the true priceless treasure. Pray that our time here would not be wasted, but that we would pursue you. I pray for anyone in here that is lost and does not know Jesus, or maybe has followed along at a distance, but has never surrendered their life to the God who made the universe. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would convict us, bring us to repentance, and save us today. Pray that our hearts would be led to repentance for the times that we flippantly view Jesus as just another thing in our lives. And I pray that from this day forward until you call us home, which is not long, that our pursuit would be Christ and Christ alone. We love you. We thank you. Be with us in this time together. Change our hearts, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. And you can be seated. So our text today is Matthew 13. I know a few months back, back in 2019, we kind of went through some of the parables of Jesus. And I wanted to revisit this one today because it's something that's been laid on my heart, something that has convicted me over and over. The Holy Spirit's been working on my heart um, to reveal that I don't truly treasure the things that are most important in my life. And so Jesus, uh, we see in this, and, and we, he did this often, he spoke in parables, which helped create visual scenarios in our minds. And, and if, you, you know, if you spend any time on this earth, you realize like, that we are visual people. Most of us are visual people, and we understand things a little bit better when we can see them. That's why we watch so many TV shows, watch so many movies. We are entertained by things we can visually see. And so this wasn't missing in what Jesus was doing. He gave parables often for two reasons. He gave so that it would help give us something con to connect to in our minds as we see these illustrations that, that he's giving us, but also so that what he was saying would be veiled and hidden as well. So that those who don't know Jesus and who are not called to be his would not get it. It would just sound like a story. But for those of us who believe and who have, who have been called by Christ to be his, it just opens up these beautiful avenues of understanding and knowledge and wisdom in what he's doing. And so we see in here, in this particular passage, he's referring to the kingdom of heaven. And uh, back to the, sorry, I missed this, but back to the, uh, back to the uh, parables, we kind of, if we look at the ones that we studied before, we see the sower, we see um, the net, we see all different kinds of parables that Jesus gives us to help us to visualize what he's talking about. And so we get to the treasure in the field. Verse 44 says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. And we see this often, that Jesus came speaking of the kingdom of heaven. Now we might assume that the kingdom of heaven is something that was scattered all throughout the Old Testament. But that line, kingdom of heaven, was not seen in the Old Testament. So we have Jesus showing up on the scene, miracles are being done, and he continually talks about the kingdom of heaven. And this is a new thing for the people in his day. It's not found in the Old Testament. Matthew 4, verse 17 says, From that time, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He spoke often of it. Matthew 5, verse 7, when we went through the Beatitudes, we got to see this, the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Chapter 16, verse 9, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 18, verse 3, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And he continues on in, the, in chapter 19 with that. Jesus says, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for, such, for for such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And so he spoke of the kingdom of heaven in this phrase often in his parables. We see it in the parable of the leaven. We see it in the man who sowed the good seed in the field. We see it in a grain of mustard seed that grows to be the great tree. We see it in a net thrown into the sea, and it's on and on and on. Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven. And in this passage, Jesus refers to the kingdom of heaven as a treasure hidden in a field and as a pearl of great value, of great price. So talk about, let's talk about treasure for a bit. If you follow the news, Annie, Christy and I were talking about this just a little bit um, before service started. Um, if you're familiar with the Fen treasure, it's kind of like a modern day movie in the making, if you will. Um, and I want to read just a little bit of this because this just happened this last few weeks here. Um, this is from my CNN story. Thousands of brave souls have ventured into the Rocky Mountains for the past decade, searching for a treasure chest filled with gold, rubies, emeralds, and diamonds. But that adventure has finally come to, the, come to an end. The treasure has been found. There's a guy named Forrest Fenn. He was an 89-year-old art and antiquities collector who created the treasure hunt, made in the announcement Sunday on his website. It was under a canopy of stars in the lush, forested vegetation of the Rocky Mountains and had not moved from the spot where I hid it more than 10 years ago. Fenn wrote in his announcement, I do not know the person who found it, but the poem, my, the poem in my book led him to the precise spot. The treasure was found a few days ago by a man who did not want to be named. Fenn told the Santa Fe New Mexican, he noted, however, that the man was from back east and that he confirmed his discovery by sending Fenn a, photo a photograph of his newfound riches. The treasure was estimated to be worth over a million dollars, was a way for Fenn to inspire people to explore nature and give hope to people affected by the Great Recession, he said. Clues leading to the treasure's location were included in a 24-line poem published in Fenn's 2010 autobiography, The Thrill of the Chase. Fenn estimated that as many as 350,000 people from all over the world went hunting for the treasure, according to the New Mexican. Some quit their jobs to fully dedicate their lives to the hunt, and some even died searching for the treasure. I congratulate the thousands of people who participated in the search and hope they will continue to be drawn by the promise of other discoveries, Fenn said. So throughout our history, it's humanity. Like we have been fascinated from time to time with treasure hunts, treasure chests, and, and riches that are to be found, or they're just out there hidden. Um, and it's kind of, they make, we've made movies about it. If you remember the, uh, the movies uh, National Treasure, you know, we had this tale of people looking for treasures hidden by the founding fathers of our nation, and that's movies, and we've seen it in books, countless books have talked about treasures hidden that people have gone out and died looking for and, and one day found, and all of their search and all of their looking has paid off with great riches and incredible things that have changed their life in, in ways they could never imagine. We love the prospect of the glory and riches of finding hidden treasure, and this is likely why Jesus used the illustration of a treasure hidden in a field in this parable. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. 
Jesus compared the kingdom of heaven to a treasure hidden in a field. So let's picture this real quick. Man stumbling, walking home, who knows what he's doing. He falls across a field that he does not own, and he finds a treasure just out in the open. Now, obviously, it's got to be an intense treasure because the very first thing he does is he takes it and he hides it. So we know this, it wasn't his field because he's going home to try to deal with this. He's found this treasure of unbelievable value, and now he's hidden it in a field. And so he goes home, and he debates about what he's going to do. He knows there's a treasure, but he knows that likely the owner of the field will hold claim to that treasure. It's in his field. It's his. So he shrewdly wanders around town, imagine, and he finds out who owns that field. And then I'm sure if, if he was a man of integrity, he probably offered a fair value for that field. But when he found out how much it cost, he realized he doesn't have enough money in his bank accounts. Everything he owns, the cash value would take it all. So he doesn't have the money, the spare change to buy this field. So it says that in joy, he takes and he sells literally everything he has. And he goes, takes that money, and he buys that field. Now, we don't think about this often, and I don't want to add to Scripture or anything, but it could very well have been that he owned fields nicer than that field. And so it might have looked stupid, silly for him to buy a field by selling a better field that he owned. We don't know that that's how it went, but it's a parable. It very well could have been that, that he was selling a field that was worth much more just to get the money back. Because we all know we don't really get what we paid for something anymore once you trade it in. But he takes everything he owns and he sells it. And then the parable says, in joy, he takes it all and he buys that field. Cost him everything he has. Why? Why does he do that in joy? Because he knows what's hidden in that field. And now that he owns the field, it is his to do with as he pleases. That treasure that he hid is his. And we may look at it and say, well, it cost him everything. But he looked at it in joy and said it was worth more than everything he owned. So he sells everything he has. He endures probably mocking as he sold, sells everything he has. He has nothing to his name but this field, but he doesn't care because he knows what's hiding in that field. Verse 45 says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding a pearl, one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. It's the same story, different treasure. Someone's looking for pearls, they're making their living on pearls, and they find that one pearl of unbelievable value. Nothing else that they have compares to that pearl. So they sell everything to get that one pearl. So what's this treasure? What's the pearl of great price that we're looking at? We all know what it is. It's the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in a field that a man sells everything he has to buy, to obtain. But we know that, that the kingdom of heaven Looking at this, I was thinking about this the other day. The kingdom of heaven, in Scripture, we see in the Old Testament, heaven is often referred to, but it's referred to as uh, the throne room of God. We see that in the Psalms, that, that heaven is his throne room, and the earth is his footstool. So when Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven, the Israelites in this day and time would have thought, he means the throne room of God. He means the presence of God. 
And we see that this great treasure that Jesus is talking about, that he has uh, talked about the kingdom of heaven, and now this treasure that it's compared to is him. It's Jesus. If you will, turn with me to John chapter 1, as we look and see that Jesus is treasured from creation and before creation. John accounts in verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So when we look at that account of creation, it kind of mirrors the account in Genesis 1, where we see how God walks through creation. They both tell us, both passages tell us, of of the beginning before the world was created and how the world was created. Genesis tells us God's historical account of creation, And John talks about how it was made through. It was made through Christ. It talks about Jesus' place in creation. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John tells us in the beginning of his written account of the gospel, and this is by the power of the Holy Spirit, he would have had no way of knowing this, that Jesus was present in creation. So we look at this, and if you've argued much ever with um, Jehovah's Witnesses, you know they don't believe this, and this is something that this passage kind of flushes out. Chris was talking about this a few weeks ago. But that this passage tells us that Jesus is God. Like he, He's not just a prophet or a good man or a righteous priest. He is God in the flesh. The Word wasn't just with God. The Word was God, Scripture tells us. Which means what? That Jesus is eternal. God is literally the only eternal being that has ever ever been and ever will be. And so we know that Jesus is eternal. So before creation, He always was. He always is and He always will be. He never ceased being God even when He took on flesh. And there are churches today that teach that Jesus, and you might have heard it, but that Jesus, when he came down from heaven, he put aside being God, and he came down and he just became man because that was the only way it could be done. And I can tell you this right now, it does not line up in any form of philosophy or intelligence. That which is eternal can never cease from being eternal. Otherwise, it can't be eternal. If it has to exist from forever before and exist to forever at the end, It can never in the middle stop being eternal. So we know that when Christ came and he laid down his life, he did it as man and as God. And you don't have to have a full understanding of a mystery to stand and marvel at it. That should lead our hearts to worship. If Jesus ceased to be God, then he never was God. But we know that he was God in the flesh. And he was rejected by his own Verse 11 says, He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. Ever since the beginning of time, 
the promise of God has been Jesus. We say it often, like, Jesus wasn't plan B. He was the center of the plan from the beginning. Even though it wasn't known at the time, the promises has always been Jesus. We go back to Genesis. God promised to Eve that her offspring would crush the serpent and would be bruised by the serpent. That's Jesus. God promised Abraham that through his offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And I know a lot of people look at that and say, well, that's through Israel. No, that's through Jesus. Because what is Jesus doing in establishing his church? He's taking members from every tribe, nation, and tongue so that every nation would be blessed in Jesus. King David's son was pro- King David was promised that his son would have a kingdom that would never end, and we know Solomon didn't have a kingdom that never ended. But down the line from, from King David, we find a baby in a manger, God in the flesh. The promise has always been Jesus. Christ is literally everywhere in the New Testament, and I want to challenge you as the church when you're reading through the Bible, and I pray that we're reading through the Bible, that we look and see where Jesus is. He's promised in so many ways. And now he's here, and he's rejected by his own. The promises of uh, of a kingdom that would never end, that all the nations would be blessed, every single promise made in Christ is now on display in Jesus, and his own people don't want him. Jesus shows up on the scene in fulfillment of all the promises and is rejected by the people to whom he was promised. The greatest treasure of the world was rejected. The greatest treasure of the world was stripped naked. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was spit on. He had his beard ripped out of his face. The one that made all things and all things were made through him was given a crown of thorns. He was condemned. He was nailed to a cross. He was raised up in a display of humiliation and murder, killed by those he had created. Think about this. He was hung on a tree that he created. It was the greatest sin humanity could ever have committed to kill the one who made all things. If God is the cosmic ruler of the universe, there is no greater treason to be committed than to kill his son. He was innocent, and we killed him. Through his word, all things were created, and we killed him. Think about this. If all things were made in Christ, then at the word of God, light sprung into obedience and and there was light. He said, let there be light. And it sprung to obedience and there was light. He, He commands these things to be created by the word of his mouth. And all, every single one of them in the creation account springs to utmost obedience immediately. And then in a garden where man got to walk and commune with God face to face. We chose our own preferences over him. What a great treason that is that we are all guilty of. We don't have to convince ourselves of our sin. We know how disobedient we are. 
the Word became flesh, and we killed Him. Acts chapter 2, verse 22 through 36. This is Peter at the day of Pentecost. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according, don't miss this, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. King David, as great as he was, he died and was buried, and his tomb is still with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. We killed the Son of God, and every single one of us are worthy of an unbelievable death and punishment for all eternity. And if that is what he did, it would have been perfectly just. We deserve that death. We deserve his wrath forever. Think of the disobedience in our own lives. Like we can't even be given the smallest command from the Lord that we follow through day by day by day apart from his Holy Spirit. So you and I are guilty of disobedience. We're guilty of treason against the God of the universe. Light obeys and we do not. The wages, the earnings, the payout for every sin that we have committed has always been the same. It's been death. The wages of sin is death, Scripture tells us. But we know the end of that verse says, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. He who knew no sin became sin for us. So our sins, our disobedience, this is the gospel right here. This is what we need to go out and share with everyone we come in contact with. Our sins, our disobedience left us deserving and earning of a death forever. That had to be paid. We could not be righteous on our own. We have been full of disobedience and treason and guilt and shame. And that cannot stand in the presence of God. So there had to be another way. And it required the payment for our sins to be paid in full. And it wasn't put just on a good man or a prophet or 
someone who had a really large following, but it was put on the Son of God who laid down the glory that he had in heaven. Not his godship, but his glory. Believe me this, we see a little bit in Scripture of what it looks like in the presence of the throne room of God. Can't even be described by our language how glorious and how wonderful it is. And we see a small glimpse of who Jesus was in his glory. And he lays that down to come pay the price to bring you into the family of God. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. Christ died a terrible, humiliating death on a cross so that we who were full of sin and unrighteousness could not just become free, but but, but would be listed as that we would be the righteousness of God through Jesus. So back to our passage, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. What an unbelievable, valuable treasure Jesus is. So my question is, and I'm going to go through a few questions. We do this often in our life groups. Um, just kind of look inside and, and kind of see where you're at. If Jesus is this unbelievably priceless treasure that we can be with forever. Is he worth that to you today? Or is he just another good thing among all the other good things in our life? Church, not only did Jesus die on a cross to save us, but he purchased our adoption into the family of God. So now you, if you are in Christ, you are not just a servant in the house of God, you are a child of the Father. It says you're a joint heir with Christ. The one who commits treason brought into the family of God and now is a part, is a child, an adopted child, not just a servant. It would have been enough for us just to be servants in the house of God. But he made his children. So if you were his today, you were a child of God and you have a family. You're not alone. You have a family that has the same treasure in Christ. And my question for us as a church, as church, do we really treasure Jesus? Is he worth more to us than everything we have combined? We see the rich young ruler, he stood face to face with the God through whom all things were made. And he had to walk away ashamed because he valued his life and the stuff he had more than the one who created it. Are we guilty of the same do we proclaim with our mouths our great love for Jesus, but turn and walk away when it's going to cost us something? Are we willing to let go of all of our idols and the stuff that we have, that we hold on and we hoard and cling solely to Jesus? There's a few of us that have kind of read through a book this week that, that we just happened upon, um, and it's called Letters to the Church. And one of the things that it really points out is that across uh, outside of America, the church looks vastly different, with the exception of the places that we're taking our version of church to. 
But if you go to China, where there are 100 million Christians underground worshiping the Lord with their life on the line, church looks much, much different. If you've seen the video on Facebook where um, Bibles were taken into one of these churches and you saw the joy that they had and they were crying and they were falling on their faces as they got to have their own copy of the Word of God. And church, how many of us have more than 10? And they're just collecting dust because it's not something we treasure. The truth is, is that we may claim to see Jesus as the treasure in that field, but we would rather have our conveniences and a comfortable way of life instead of that treasure. We come to an hour and a half long service once a week, maybe, unless I'm preaching and it's two hours. <laughs> and we don't even crack open our Bibles the rest of the week. We spend no time in prayer. We don't call and check on one another and love one another and pray for one another and serve one another. So church, we'd have to ask, like, where if, if that is what's describing us as the church in America today, then where is our treasure truly? Jesus said in Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, hear this church, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if that's the case, where my treasure is, my heart is also, then we can ask ourselves, where's my heart? Because that's what I treasure. This last part might be painful. I think it's necessary that we need to evaluate where we are right now as believers and as the church, as Gospel Life Community Church. Do we look like the church Jesus said we would be? Or do we need to fall on our faces in repentance before Christ? Where's our treasure? Is your treasure in your family? Family is a great thing. It's a blessing and a gift from the Lord. Children are a blessing and a gift from the Lord. We see that in Scripture. But Jesus said, if any one of you loves son or daughter or mother or father more than you love me, we're not worthy of him. Is it our lifestyle? Is that what we treasure? That if the Lord were to call you today and say, I want you to give up everything and go be a missionary overseas and take the gospel there, like, would we throw up and say, I can't do that? In America, it's really easy to treasure our lifestyle, our freedoms. I thank God that we have them, but it is very possible that they have become an idol to us and one that stands in the way of us pursuing Christ. It's so easy here in America to proclaim that we love Jesus above all other things and yet clearly prove week in and week out that our heart and therefore our treasure is somewhere else. Our services, when we come together, they've just become idols and we've become consumers. Which church has the best music? Who has the best preacher? Who has the best kids program, singles program, marriage program, retreats? Who has the best thing that we can get out of it? And then if we don't get what we want, we just go somewhere else. Your restaurant doesn't have your favorite food anymore. You just don't go back. You go somewhere else. 
sad part is, is 90% of the things we just listed there aren't even found in the New Testament church and scripture. Does it sound, does this sound like our focus is on the eternal worth of Jesus Christ? Or does it sound more like that all I focus on is what I want, what makes me happy? We don't gather with the church. We don't even really like the rest of the church. They're work friends or acquaintances that you just say hey to when you pass them in Walmart. Jesus said we would be known by our love for one another and we don't even like one another. The church belongs to Jesus. He purchased her with his blood. So if you are in Jesus, you are his. But is that clear to those around you that you are his? There's the old quote, and I don't remember the first part, but I wrote the second part down. Um, If you are a Christian, if you are Christ, is there enough proof to convict you of being his? That's something we need to ask ourselves. We don't read the scriptures. When we do, it's out of obligation or guilt or a goal that we've set. It's not out of joy. We don't pray. We don't value prayer. And I pray that that is changing. I pray that all these things are changing in this church. When we pray, church, we commune with the living God. Revelation says that our prayers are present before the throne of God and are a beautiful aroma to him. It is something so pleasant when we do, and yet we don't. When was the last time in prayer that your heart cried out to God and you begged him to make you more like Jesus? When was the last time you had a longing to be near the Lord that your desire was greater than food, drink, and possession. We talk about fasting, and it's a bad thing for us to talk about. Is he worth more than our conveniences and our comfort? When was the last time you cried and wept over the sin in your life? Not out of a fear of hell and going to hell, but out of a love for Jesus. Does your sin break your heart? When was the last time that your prayers to the Lord looked more like someone pleading to be near the Lord and less like an order at a fast food drive through When was the last time your heart longed more for eternity with Christ than more time here with our stuff and our families? When was the last time that talking about how good and how great Jesus is was the most excited you got about anything? We sing songs about his greatness without even taking a moment to worship him with our hearts. We take communion flippantly without considering the power behind what we are doing when we remember his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Church, does this sound like us? Do we see Jesus in his infinite worth? Do we break for even a moment in our busy lives to worship him in the way he deserves? Or is he just an afterthought, just another good thing to add amongst the good things we already have? What do we treasure, church? What would it look like if we truly treasured Jesus above everything else? What would our church look like? What would we look like in our lives outside of our gatherings and at work? Would it affect our neighborhoods, our interactions with the people we live next to and come over asking to borrow tools and Would it change that that relationship? 
Would it change the way we work in our jobs as we do things to the glory of God and not just for the benefit of the paycheck? What would it change when we come together as the church? If Jesus was our true focus and treasure, would our church services look different than they do right now? And would our participation with the church look different than it does right now? Would our serving one another look different? If Christ was the treasure of everything in your life, how would you treat those who are part of the family of God? How would our decisions and our lives change if Christ was the true value and treasure that we have? We, che- we treat our gatherings and our church family as an optional thing. We're all guilty of it. Because we view the, the sacred, this is in the book we read, we view the sacred as something common. That when we come together as the church, we forget the price that was paid to make the church one. God forgive us.